Today on IFS Talks, we are so happy to be welcoming back Martha Sweezy. Martha Sweezy, PhD, is an assistant professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, part-time, and research, training, and curriculum consultant at the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at Cambridge Health Alliance. Today, we're speaking with Martha about her new book, Internal Family Systems for Shame and Guilt. Welcome, Martha. Thanks for being with us today on IFS Talks. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Thank you, Martha, for having us again. And many, many congratulations on your beautiful and very helpful new book, Internal Family Systems Therapy for Shame and Guilt. I'm quite confident it will help our community to better understand and apply this model to different groups of clients with different complaints and needs. Dick says in the foreword for the book, and I will quote him, in this book, Martha focuses on what I believe is the most primal, terrifying, toxic, and motivating of all burdens, shame. Why is shame so powerful, Dick says? Because when we feel shameful, we believe at some level that we are worthless. And he keeps saying, consider, for example, what depression, anxiety, and stable relational patterns eating disorders, substance use problems, and other addictive processes have in common. Martha argues that shame or guilt are often at the heart of these problems and that therapy won't be completely successful until those burdens are unloaded. So, Martha, what is this shame and this guilt at the heart of those common severe problems? Well, that's <laughs> that's what the book is about. It's almost 300 pages, so that's a big question. Um, but um, I guess I would just say, in brief, shame is I am, wor- you know, unloved. I am wrong. I am bad. I am something. It's a global assessment of personal value. Whereas guilt is, I did, I did wrong. Um, I transgressed in some way. And sometimes uh, people feel guilty about actual transgressions where they really did. We all do transgress at times. And sometimes uh, people feel guilty about uh, imagined transgressions, uh, relational transgressions that really were actually uh, behavior uh, that they engaged in in pursuit of normal developmental goals. So um, you can have adaptive guilt and maladaptive guilt, and I talk about that in the book. And uh, but shame, I make the case that shame, while it is um, uh, has been an evolutionary uh, uh, benefit for the human race. Uh, to uh, sort of be, um, to prom- it promotes conformism and uh, adherence to to group uh, uh, behaviors, um, and that that ha- has been a very powerful benefit for our survival as a species. 
but that it's not so good for individuals to feel uh, ashamed uh, and to be shamed, that that is, is in fact very toxic for people individually. And that um, the majority of people who come into therapy are going to uh, uh, have experienced having been shamed at some point in their lives in a way that was that kind of hit the spot for them uh, and caused them to do what in IFS we call exiling a part of themselves who they considered, who they discovered was going to be unacceptable in a certain social context. So you are saying, Marta, that we can also experience shame and guilt in a healthier way. No, I'm saying that you can experience guilt in a healthier way, but that shame actually, in my view, and this is something that's controversial mm -hmm. in the field, other people would say we need to be able to, we, you know, shame, feeling ashamed in some context is a good thing for people. I disagree. I actually think that uh, that feeling uh getting shamed mm -hmm. and feeling shameful, which are not the same thing. You know, sometimes you can be shamed and, and it doesn't land in a way that's effective. But if it does and you feel shame, you have a part who feels shameful as a result of that shaming, um, then you get into, you develop what I uh, explain in the book as the, uh, the shame cycle which is where this external uh, interpersonal injury goes inside and becomes an internal dynamic that you can really best understand by looking at the at the mind the way IFS does as in terms of psychic multiplicity so that you have protective parts who begin who pick up that that uh, the behavior of the external shamer and start doing it internally And therefore, it becomes a, an ongoing cycle inside where this part of you gets exiled um, and all the things that we know develop from that uh, in, in, in the IFS way of looking at things where protectors, uh, there are some protectors uh, who are very proactive, who do a lot of shaming then you have an exiled part who desperately wants to be uh, redeemed from that state of exile. And then you have reactive protectors who finally come on with a lot of disinhibition in response to the inhibitory behavior of the shaming managers. And you have what we see a lot in therapy, right? You have a, a dynamic that people can't get out of without help. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Marta, for the clarification. You illustrate that idea in a phrase. It's in the book, and I've I've shared it a couple times with clients because it it just it feels so powerful and concise. But the phrase is children can bear bad things happening, but they don't know how to bear the idea that they are bad. Can you say just a little bit more about the difference and why that's so important and crucial? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the kids are pretty resilient, actually. They're pretty good. You know, they come into the world equipped 
to explore and be curious. They have a lot of self-energy when they come in, what we would call self-energy in IFS, a lot of, of curiosity and uh, willingness to engage and, um, and, and sort of a, uh, excitement about life. And then they begin to get, um, uh, they begin to get slapped down in certain situations, often by authority figures, sometimes by other siblings, other kids. Um, and, um, depending on temperament, some kids are able to kind of charge through those insults. Uh, without as much injury as other kids. But if a kid goes from a bad thing happened to me today to I am bad, if their protective system gears up to exile a part of themselves that was criticized by somebody else, um, and they take that, that insult in, inside and become, it becomes an identity. Of I must not be. I must not be that. I must be something that is in contradistinction to that. So that that takes a lot of energy, and that takes um, it, it puts you in a position of being of going through life in fear of being exposed, um, and that sets people up for the kinds of problems we see in therapy, right? Where they have. Uh, they have hit, they don't even know they come in not feeling they don't even know themselves right and that's because they have parts and this i should say it happened to me it happens to you know most therapists have to go through this too and and find out what happened to them that caused them to go so far away from feeling comfortable about who they are uh, and it's usually an early injury in life. So the the if it goes from a bad thing happened to me to I am bad, you you know, you're in trouble. Yeah, your book has has really illuminated the the impact of shaming on the internal system. And it feels like such a gift to have it illuminated. Yeah. One I mean one of the pieces of advice I have, it's very simple for clinicians and and whether you're trained in IFS or not you can do this is to begin speaking about uh, shame as a verb so it's either an action shaming or a state of being verb uh, i am right so either i am shaming or i am shameful right and exiles are in a state of being shameful and uh, managers are in a, an active state of shaming often with the best intentions, uh, often, not always, but uh, internally and, and then externally as well. Marta, you also say this book can simplify our job as therapists. You say, we don't have to worry about the client changing. You say, we don't have to know more about our clients than the client. We don't have to give advice. And we don't have to hard work. Why is that? I found in life that hard work doesn't always get you where you want to go, for one thing. So this was something that uh, I have sort of been headed toward uh, uh, 
what works best in, in, in my practice and in my life has taught me a lot about, um, uh, about letting go of managerial approaches to things and trusting, uh, trusting my clients, trusting their parts, trusting my parts, trusting that I'm okay, you know, uh, I'm not perfect. Other people aren't going to be perfect. That that's not the goal, um, and um, uh, when our parts start working really hard, our protective parts, that's when um, things go south in in therapy and in life. I've found, and that it's counterintuitive for the for these parts. So it takes a lot of. Uh, uh, forming a self-led relationship with your parts in order to uh, uh, for them to be willing to try letting go. Let's put it that way. And the model also helps us to simplify. Yes, the mo and, and finding trust is a very simplifying thing. You don't have to worry all the time. You don't have to work so hard. I mean, I, I find that um, that hard work Uh, and even the word work, I try to avoid it. I, I know it's hard, but, you know, calling therapy work is something that I now try to avoid. And, and, it, and just, just thinking about that um, helps my managers to unblend. You know, if I hear myself using the word work in relation to therapy, then I think, oh, you know, I should check in with that part because that's probably a part who wants to fix somebody. Uh, or do some get to work here, you know, and I'm going to engage the same parts in the client. And I don't actually want my clients to change, right? I want them to find their exiles and uh, love them up. I, I, and, and after that, you know, when, when that relationship gets solidified, then, you know, life is all about change. Um, but therapy is not about change. Therapy is about Uh, stopping that process of feeling I have to change uh, and be different. Oh, amazing. One of the words that um, that you use a lot in the book with protectors is is the word relax. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, you don't ask them to step aside. You, you know, like when you're ready, you know, you offer that opportunity to, to relax, like an invitation. I mean, my parts reacted badly in the beginning of when I was first getting into IFS to would you step back? And I've a lot of other, I mean, not that I won't use it sometimes, but um, it, it's not it's not my first go-to uh, if I am being mindful because protectors can get insulted around that. But, you know, so I often actually invite everybody to come to a table and say, everybody, come on, come on in, come on in, and more, 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 whoever's around. We want you here now. Would, now who needs to get attention first? So, you know, I'm trying, with pe people who aren't sort of ready, whose systems aren't ready to go and whose protectors aren't willing yet to participate in the process, I'm like, come on in, not, not go out, right? It, work, it just works better, in my experience. Marta, in your book, Introduction, you say that, like in biology, the more scientists dig into life, the more they find systems and systems within systems. 
And you also say the premise of this book is that the psychosocial system includes numerous separate centers of motivation with different points of view who communicate by way of feelings, sensations, and thoughts. So can you say more on this perspective, numerous separate centers of motivation? Yeah, parts. Um, and, you know, in the psyche, um, uh, it's very, very easy, actually, as it turns out, to uh, guide most people to just pay attention internally and find these separate uh, centers of motivation, which, uh, you know, the word psychodynamic, which is an old uh, word in terms of therapy, means that there's a dynamic going on in your psyche, right? And a dynamic requires more than one. And and Freud and Marshall Linehan and, you know, most people who were doing any kind of internal focus for, for folks were, were noticing that there was internal conflict. And you can't have conflict without having more than one party, right? Conflict is not, it always requires a group or, or at least two. And so it's a dynamic scene in our minds. And if you get people to focus on that, um, they find that these arguments that are going on, if there's an important issue in life, are between often protective parts, right? And those parts actually have very different opinions and they're, they're holding on to different perspectives, both of which usually have some validity. And, but they're stuck with how to, how to sort of become dialectical around moving forward in life. Um, it's become an either or rather than a both and, uh, and, and self, that self energy, that sort of overview, you know, all of this has some validity perspective that the self brings, um, kind of relaxes that sense of this is an impossible either or dilemma. Beautiful. Thank you. The first section of the book is titled The Vulnerable Mind. Can you share a little bit about what made you choose that title? Yeah. I mean, I I view all anything that can be a strength yeah. as also a potential vulnerability. And so I think that psychic multiplicity was a tremendous uh, value, is a tremendous value in terms of survival. Um, and that uh, the more you know, this is why, or, you know, many corporations and organizations now uh, function in teams, right? It's a, it's a lesson that's learned that more, more, more minds coming at an issue is better than one. Uh, it's good to have, to be inclusive in terms of perspectives. And we've got that built in to our minds. We, you know, we bring a lot of different perspectives to things, but at the same time, and as I said earlier, shame it was a way of maintaining a sort of group identity and group coherence and compliance to group norms. Um, that I believe was, you know, probably essential for the success of our species. On the other hand, um, to, it's not always such a great thing to be compliant right, to group norms. I mean, people who are in lynch mobs are being compliant with a group norm. They wouldn't behave that way, probably, most of them on their own, but they'll engage in 
uh, we will all engage in sometimes horrendous behavior based on our uh, desire to stay in uh, 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 included in our particular group, right? Um, so um, uh, compliance with group norms is both a, 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 an outcome of shaming, which is very powerful. It's also, as it turns out, as we, we therapists see the kind of uh, fallout from that, what happens when people get shamed as individuals, when you are exiled as an example to the group, that it's better to, uh, to conform you're you're out and and usually you either uh either try to get back in by exiling that part of yourself which has a big cost to you or you become enraged or both you know you have a protective part who gets angry and starts doing shaming other people for example in order to toss the hot potato or you know acts out in some way that then brings consequences to you uh, that are unfortunate and to other people um, or, you know, is a firefighter behavior around, you know, something that's really effective in the short run, like substances that uh, if you overuse them, then are tremendously costly to your body and yourself and the people around you. So there's all these ways in which um, uh, what proved, what has proved to be um a very valuable feature of the of the human mind, psychic multiplicity and this internal community that polices itself um, is uh, uh, also brought us, I think, to the brink of of well, uh, where we are now, which is the brink of we're in disaster, the brink of extinction. you know, so I think that um, that we the the answer, uh, which, and it kind of took me years of going through IFS to come to this, but is uh, I've, I found uh, a piece of research that uh, Tanya Singer did on empathy uh, and compassion, which I talk about in a chapter in the book. And that, in short, the difference between the two, when she first did this research, she thought they would be the same. They would be on a continuum in the brain. But in fact, the empathy uses neural empathy with pain uses neural pain pathways. It shows up in neural pain pathways in the brain, whereas compassion for pain uh, shows up in reward uh, neural reward pathways in the brain. And that that was like a light bulb going off for me. Like that's what we're doing in IFS. We're bringing this, which we consider we're calling an IFS, and I, I think of it this way as a, a different kind of form of consciousness to uh, the suffering of our parts. Uh, so we have these two sort of uh, um, compatible and uh, essentially in relationship forms of consciousness in our minds that give us, that's the exit, you know, compassion is the exit from the shame cycle. And um, that's, that's kind of what Dick stumbled on in his willingness to explore with parts and with, with his clients who were suffering so much. 
is that there is an exit from suffering and uh, it's built in. We have, um, I think of the brain as a receiver of consciousness and we have the ability to, to channel, and I'm going to put it in my words, other people might not agree, but to channel this form of consciousness that is essentially uh, an exit from our, from suffering. Martha, you also say shame and guilt can be very pervasive in many systems, but are not always so visible to our clients, and clients not always aware of its presence. Why is that? Well, for one thing, although I, I do believe um, that shame has become a more um, sort of open topic, Uh, often, you know, you say the word and people want to leave the room, right? I mean, that's the nature of shame is that it's the message is if I'm going to have to think about things that I consider shameful about myself, I certainly don't want to share them with other people and I don't want them to be exposed. Um, and it's the message is hide. In fact, the word shame, I think, has a Scandinavian origin, which is to to hide. Um, and uh, so that's the that's the action urge that comes with the the the, the very concept of, sh of shame. Um, we want to get out of there. So I, I think on the other hand, I have found, and maybe it's just because I advertise my practice this way that people come to me, and say, I want to talk about shame. I want, I'm desperate to get to this subject. I need to uh, get to the bottom of this. So um, I, I don't have any problem bringing it up uh, at this point. Um, I, I certainly probably did in the beginning. I can't remember, you know, 30 years ago, but. It's so important, yes, that, that we can manage with shame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we have to, we as therapists have to be very, um, have to do this exploration internally ourselves first so that we're not uh, getting our parts, our protected parts aren't coming in and pulling the, the curtain on something that, that is very similar to what the client is going through that we haven't taken a look at in ourselves. So we have to do this exploration around the shame cycle in ourselves so that we're open and ready to and believing that people uh, are fine, that there's that they, they can get through this. And it's not about that they're going to get to the bottom of it and discover that they're really unacceptable or unlovable. One topic um, in your book that I was so grateful that you addressed was the topic of of bonds, trauma bonds that are either shame related or, or guilt related. And, um, one thing that you said, I think it was about shame related trauma bonds. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that, um, that empathy that they can be based on empathy between exiles, which, which can cause trouble in the system. So there's a lot, there's sort of a lot in, in me bringing all of that to you. But um, could you say a little bit more about empathy between exiles and then 
uh, trauma bonds based on guilt and shame. Well, yeah, I'll start by saying this, as I was just saying, that we need to do our own exploration. And part of the reason is that um, exiles have a great uh, kind of tuning fork with other exiles and uh, will will really um, resonate so that our exiles will resonate with a client's exiles in such a way that our protectors might come in and shut the therapy down in a way that isn't going to be very untherapeutic for our clients. Um, and the same is true for our clients, of course, that they have, if say, if I grew up, if I'm a client in therapy, if I grew up in a household where I had a parent who was uh, emotionally or verbally abusive toward me and critical, um, and uh and yet, at the same time, that parent that would be a protector in the parent, right? But I would also resonate with the parent's exiles who would also be shown to me. In other words, the parent would show themselves as vulnerable at times and as frightened or or incapable of functioning and critical. So that you would get you get a big picture. It's not what you know what the person might come in and say talking about is my parent was very critical, but they don't talk about the fact that they also uh, talked to you know mom or dad talked about their problems to the child, right? And and were tender and 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 solicitous of what do you think I should do to a three year old or a five year old, right? So that there was a role reversal <clears throat> there where the, the parent showed, came forth with their exiles with the child and also came forth with their protectors with the child in the same way, going after the child in the same way that they went after the exile internally. So there's a, a, a sort of a blending uh, uh, that goes on in, in traumatic relationships between exiles and uh, and and protectors on both sides, right? Um, there's identification with the aggressor, where the 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 person who's being hurt has protectors that may pick up behaviors from the from the perpetrator, and there's also this bond between the exiles, and that can cause um, you know what, what what family therapists typically call parentification. Um, so that um, I think of it as parentified parts rather than a parentified child. But the child will have a parentified manager who takes care of the, the parent's exile, partly because there's such a strong bond between the child's exile and the parent's exile. It gets really complicated. And feels guilty if they leave the parent or individuate. Yeah, I have to protect this person. That's my first duty, because then I might get a little parenting out of them, for one thing. And I might be able to keep them calm. But ultimately, those managers get very focused on protecting somebody else outside of the child system and will sacrifice the child to the uh, if they think it will protect the adult. Um, so it can get really complicated in terms of of um, the trauma bond that goes on there and the guilt. You give so many good examples in the book of how to work with this. Um, 
So I really plug, I'm taking a chance to plug right now if, if this feels interesting or relevant to listeners. I, like there's so many ways that you work with this. Yeah, I mean, one of my one of my big goals in the book was to take things that can look quite naughty and complicated and really uh, illustrate how it, it's possible to explore them in a way that undoes all those knots and um, and really is clarifying for the client and for the therapist and and you can move through it. It's not, it sounds, when I say it gets complicated, I don't mean that the, it's untreatable. It's very treatable, uh, but you have to, you have to appreciate uh, how complex it feels to the client relationally, what a, what a sort of web is going on relationally in, internally. Yeah. You really illustrate what to look out for, how it can feel, how it can show up and and how to work with it, um, which, as it turns out, are all the ways we know how to work with parts in IFS. Even if really, feeling- I, IFS is a really beautiful, you know, sort of blueprint for how to move through complex material without making it more complex. Martha, you say we will always experience shame. But the way we react to it, that's where the difference is. Right. Can you tell us more about this difference? Yeah. Well, shame is a hardwired emotion, right? So um, you can unburden all your parts, which is an ideal that probably, you know, will never, we'll never get to a full sort of self-led life all the time, right? But um, our awareness of our parts and their needs and our awareness of the need to bring self-energy into our interactions internally and externally moves us in, in a certain direction in life, which uh, is one that I find very beneficial. But we're still going to, we still hardwired with all these different feelings, right? And shame, the capacity to feel shame uh, is one of those feelings. Um, and um, so that's not going to go away. You're not going to be shame free. You're never if someone if someone makes a point of trying to shame you, you're going to feel hurt if it hits the spot and you're going to have a part. It feels like, ouch, is there really something wrong with me? And then you're going to have to take care of yourself um, and notice that before it turns into an ongoing self attack um, internally. Uh, so. Um, bringing compassion to yourself uh, when you feel ashamed or, you know, meaning some exile has been sort of revealed to you or when somebody actively tries to shame you and succeeds um, is essential uh, in terms of taking care of yourself in life. This, this, this point might be also why you included a whole chapter dedicated to unblending. Yes. Unblending is the key to everything. Uh, right. We, and, and it's a different way of saying that the key to everything is getting access to that, to that kind of consciousness, which we call self energy. Um, and the only way to do that is to engage parts, to be willing to do this thing that we call unblending which is um, 
so experience, you know, experientially people get it, uh, but they have to get into it and practice it and get their parts to be willing to do it. It's not something we do for our parts. It's something our parts have to be willing to do and they, they know how to do it. It's, they do it all the time, but they aren't necessarily willing and usually they're not willing at the beginning of therapy. And so the whole first portion of therapy, which is usually a long, a lot longer than the second portion is engaging parts around their willingness to unblend. And when we get through that, we get their willing, then things go right along and it gets to the, the juicy stuff that people feel is the, the heart of therapy where you, you're really helping exiles to, to you're know, witnessing exiles and helping them to take charge of, of their own experience. And that's where, you know, people feel more, the therapists and clients feel more kind of gratified about the process. It can be really tough in the beginning when you're negotiating with protectors around their willingness. Um, but if you see it that way, it becomes a lot less tough. I mean, in my experience, it's like, yeah, this is where we need to be. These parts have been on their own for years. They've suffered. They've done their best to, to survive all this and they're heroes. And as long as it takes them, that's how long it takes them. You know, we have to honor them in their process. In your chapter, Common Problems, where you approach problems like anxiety, depression, but also grief or fear of death, you say when someone uses the word depressed, therefore I drill down to specifics. So can you share more? How do you address depression? Well, one of the things I say in the book is that depression is a is a big is a big term and people mean very different things by it when they uh, use the word. So when I say I drill down, I mean I'm trying to understand what this person who's right in front of me uh, is talking about in terms of their actual experience. I I don't know if they mean sadness or if they mean a protective part who is sort of, uh, you know, sitting on them uh, in order to uh, inhibit um, uh, and, uh, their uh, other parts. And, and, a, and a depressed part who's a protector can be inhibiting the panic and grief of an exile, can be inhibiting the suicide urge of, of a, a sort of a protector who's at the top of the heap, the last the last resort protector, the suicide protector. Um, so depression can mean a lot of different things depending on what's going on with this individual. And I want to understand how they're using the word, what they're what they're explaining, what they're describing specifically. Is it an exile? Is it a protector? What's the fear? What's your past experience with this? What are we talking about? Same would be true of anxiety. You know, I, what are we talking about here? Who's anxious and why? And uh, where's the protective system in this? Your book was a, was a great reminder with these, these common problems that you named, fear of death, racism, um, overwhelming guilt or uh, grief and it was it was such a good reminder to bring self-energy to whatever shows up and and to remain calm and to approach these problems that could seem 
activating with the same warmth and compassion that you would bring anything. And curiosity. And curiosity. That, that was important in, in reading about working with racism. Um, yeah, and I bet our listeners would, would like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, that um, I consider racist, you know, firefighters usually to be their protectors, right? And uh, any, I mean, firefighters can be really extreme and obnoxious and scary too. And they can behave badly, you know, they can be dangerous in the world. And so when somebody comes in who is who is being uh, sort of extreme in a direction that is alarming uh, in terms of what they might do actually in the world and um, and their what they're uh, if they have the threatening part that's threatening externally in the world, you have to assess that how you know how realistic is this person's potential for violence. But beyond that, there's you know, it, in my system, at least, I can have parts who who get react, who become reactive if someone sounds like they're in danger of harming other people, even emotionally. You know, in their life, and it, so I really have to help my parts to to give me the space to bring self energy and curiosity to parts who have gotten into such an extreme place. And where did that come from in your life? And what's important about being so um, uh, horrible, you know, behaving so horribly? What What's going on here? Um, and I have found not, I mean, I've worked in a context um, where I didn't run into a lot of people like that, but I did on occasion um, uh, run into people who were uh, saying hostile things about other groups of people. Uh, whether it was women or uh, an an ethnic uh, group or a racial group, and to to help my parts not get triggered by that, but to stay with the person in the way I would with any client, you know, and to to uh, have some compassion for um, for them, and to know that their exiles or they have exiles in there, and and this. This person probably in my context would have known that they were being off-putting to me. So that was, I would appreciate that that was a protector that was specifically challenging me to have, are you testing me to see if I'm going to become bossy or judgmental or uh, hostile in return, which is usually what they've experienced in their life with authority figures. Right, so people who want to uh, control them, and so I I bring a lot of self energy to those interactions and offer a lot of healing. And that was- right, and you get through. Uh, you know, if you you I, I found you you know you get through to some remarkably tender stuff pretty quickly. Usually, if you don't get reactive. Marta, right at the introduction, you help us understand how the concept of multiple minds has been in the field since Freud and with many other authors. And the same with the idea of a unique form of a self, an observant self, monitoring inner leader or consciousness. Can you tell us what is really new and unique in IFS? Right. Um, 
what is new in my view, and again, there may be other people who have found other unique things, but is um, the the interactiveness with uh, parts. And um, in other words, Freud had a, you know, id, ego, superego, that's a multiple mind in more aggregated form. Um, but the, there wasn't, it was more observational than relational right and this is a very immediately well you know how do we ask how do you feel toward that part right away right so we're immediately noticing a relationship that's going on between maybe two parts maybe the client has some access to their self and their uh, already getting into relationship between the self and the part, but we immediately dig into um, who is doing what to whom and why right now, and um, that is a, a much more active uh, approach than um, than many psychotherapy approaches in the past when they were dealing with. Multiple, not all of them. I mean, there was, you know, Gestalt therapy, and there were many uh, therapies that came along before IFS that were dealing with psychic multiplicity, um, including in hypnosis. But I think Dick de just developed a way, a blueprint for having a very um, quick access to uh, for people experientially to get into relationship with their parts and have more compassion for them. Marta, at the conclusion, you have this amazing chapter you called How Therapy Ends, and you say, I want for my clients what I want for myself. I want them to comfort their vulnerable parts even before their shamers. Why is that so important, Martha? Well, um, I think of it like uh, on an airplane, you know, where they say, you know, get get the oxygen on yourself and then help the, the kid who's sitting next to you. The the shamer is a is a panicked part also, but the one who it's gonna keep getting triggered um and panicked if the exile is still um, hurting. So you go to the exile first and, and then you stop. Um, in other words, the protective system activates to do something about injury right away, right? But, and, and the things they do um, are hide, um, uh, self-attack, self shaming the self, attack somebody else, have a revenge, right? So the protective systems gears up to do what they do, but we don't want them doing any of that stuff um, before uh, there's any input from the self and before the exile has been taken care of. So if you get shamed, you're going to have a part who might immediately want to um, hurt that person and shame them back. Or you can have a party who wants to leave the room and hide. You can have a party who wants to get a manager who wants to get into action and shame you 
and say, you know, if only you weren't so X, Y, and Z, these people wouldn't treat you that way. Um, and you want to, over time, develop a relationship with those parts in which they gear up and you say, it's okay, guys. It's okay. We don't have to deal with this right now. What we do, what I do need is some space so I can take care of this part who just got hurt. And when that part feels better, we'll consider what we might, how we might want to respond to a person who is, who is uh, being hurtful. And then you can have a more self-led response that might, you know, it might range from not being in relationship to that person to speaking to them in some kind of self-led way. But you are much more prepared to deal with the external threat once you have calmed your own system and taken care of your own, uh, the part who got hurt. So, Marta, thank you so much for having us. We trust your book will do an amazing journey and will be of great help for our community. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha, and we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work, and our lives. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thanks for sharing that wisdom and for all your wisdom and for contributing this incredible book to our community. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure.